Since we find ourselves at the end of 2023, and we stand on the doorstep of 2024, this would ordinarily be the time we start talking about resolutions. I know there have been a lot of Christmas, I'm sorry, New Year's, I'm going to have to take a while to make sure that sticks in my head, New Year's transitions that I've talked about resolutions. Normally at this point I would ask you, well, how did you do with your 2023 resolutions? Were you successful? And then the next question on my mouth would be, do you even remember what your 2023 resolutions were? And we could go on and on like that. We could all offer tips and techniques to each other. If you had a good year as far as making and keeping resolutions go, then we could encourage one another and we could help one another. But I'm not going to do that this year. I want to talk about something I think will be far more productive and on point when we get into today's lesson. And that has to do with proper planning. And at first you might think, well, well wait a minute, Pastor. Um, Aren't they really the same? Because after all, who can successfully complete a resolution if they don't plan to do so? And partly that's right. But to be honest, they're actually quite different as much as they are similar because the fruit that comes out of proper planning is different than the fruit that comes out of making resolutions. Resolutions typically will depend on us, our commitment to the cause, our ability to control our own human wills. And then, in the end, do we have enough self-discipline to keep a promise that, quite literally, we make to ourselves? Whereas proper planning actually depends far more on the Lord, or at least it should. And that will be the lesson that we will be going through this morning, that every step of the way as we make plans and hope to achieve and produce those plans in our earthly lives, every step of the way, we are trusting God with that planning and the keeping of those plans. Which brings us then to this part of, if you will, this entire service. Do you have any big plans for 2024? And I'm not going to criticize you. If you do, I've already got a few in my own mind. But the reality is, is that today's lesson is less about us planning for the future as much as it is about trusting God with each and every single one of those plants. Because without the Lord's blessing, without the Lord's guidance as we both make and attempt to keep those plans, we can plan all day long. And it's not going to come to pass unless it is God's will. We're going to find this lesson in the book of James, which is interesting because there's a lot of other things in this book that we could certainly talk about. But we're going to turn our attention to this New Testament letter. It's known as a general epistle because it has application for all time and all people, just as the rest of the New Testament, but it comes from a very specific place. And I want to give you just a tiny bit of background, and then in a few moments we're going to have a, a clip which will, if you will, fill out everything that we need to know in order to understand today's lesson. The opening verses tell us that the Holy Spirit has James write this letter to Jewish Christians who had been forced out of the land of Judea, and they were now settling in other parts of the known world. It's known as the diaspora, which is the Latin word for dispersion. It's amazing to watch how God used what we human beings would consider a bad thing, and he literally turns it around to create some amazing outcomes. Quite honestly, the, one, the greatest one was that these people were going to new lands and sharing their faith, at least initially, and the gospel was spreading throughout the world. 
The problem, though, that James is addressing, and so we'll hear encouragements and admonishments for these first century Jewish Christians, the problem that they faced is the same problem that we still face today, whether it's 2023 or 2024, that after an amount of time, the human nature tends to want to grow lazy and not complete the tasks which we either have set out or have been given to us. What was actually happening is these Jewish Christians were living their religion without actually living their faith. And I know that sounds a little bit confusing, but let me show you what I mean. They would go to different places, and of course, they were still Christian. They still believed Jesus Christ as their Savior. But it didn't have the same impact on their lives that it once did. So throughout the book of James, you can find him calling them out for various things that showed not only a lack of love for the Lord, but a lack of love for each other. He says, you know what? You're starting to show favoritism towards outsiders as well as insiders, if you will. You find somebody you like, and all of your energy goes into them instead of sharing the love of God in general ways. Uh, you're quarreling with one another. You're slandering each other. Many of you are starting to put more trust in your money or the money of others than you're putting in God. And maybe one of the most severe and extreme examples of how they were living a religion without living their faith was the fact that they were blaspheming the name of God. And blaspheme can take many different forms, but the one that he points out is you're calling on the name of God. You're taking an oath for what are known as frivolous or unnecessary oaths. Basically things that don't require God Almighty to stand as your witness. And so when you use his name as the backup for you telling truth in trivial matters, it's a waste of good words. More than that, it's a slap in a face, in the face of God. So now that you're starting to understand the whole general concept of this letter that James wrote to these early Christians, I want to give you the bigger picture, if you will, and why these words are so applicable for us today. When going through hardship, the last thing we want to think about is how to keep growing as disciples of Jesus. We usually focus on just surviving, while the many areas of our lives that need transformation fall to the wayside. But the letter of James challenges this tendency, and instead tells us that God wants to use these times to bring us to greater maturity in Christ. When Jesus ascended to the Father, he left his disciples with a commission to bring the gospel to the whole world. Within two years, the community of committed Christ followers had grown greatly, but so had opposition. It was at this time that Stephen was martyred, the first Christian to lose his life for being associated with Jesus. After Stephen's death, a local persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. Some Jewish religious leaders broke into homes in order to drag people to prison just for being Christians. This was the first organized assault that the young church would experience. Most fled Jerusalem for their lives, traveling as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Only the apostles and other church leaders remained in the city. At first, these scattered Jewish believers were passionate about their faith and proclaimed the good news in all the lands to which they traveled, initially only to other Jews. Their message about Jesus, however, was largely rejected by Jewish communities beyond Judea. As a result, 
they too were rejected. They no longer fit in with those Jews who did not believe that Jesus was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. At the same time, they also didn't fit in with the Gentiles, who viewed them as just another Jewish sect that avoided pagan temples and idolatrous festivals. As the years of their exile stretched on, these Christian refugees grew increasingly weary and downhearted. God wasn't showing up to help them in the ways they expected. As a result, their trust in God and His faithfulness decreased. Instead, they began placing their trust in the wealthy for provision and protection. Selfishness and individualism ruled their hearts, leading them to turn against and slander one another. Exhausted by the circumstances, good works became optional, rather than faith's essential fruit. These worn-out Christians needed wisdom and encouragement to put them back on track. It finally came to them in the form of a letter from none other than the half-brother of Jesus himself, James. The Gospels tell us that early on, James had a hard time believing his big brother was the Jewish Messiah. He and the rest of his family didn't understand Jesus' ministry methods and at times even questioned his sanity. But after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to James, who then came to realize that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. Can you imagine that conversation? In the following years, James became a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church. He was one of the leaders who remained in the city after the persecution began. He used it as a base to provide oversight and pastoral care to the scattered Christian community. For them, he was a pillar in difficult times. His spiritual strength and devoted faithfulness to Jesus was a model for others and a great comfort. It was this strength that James offered the discouraged believers scattered in and beyond Judea. As their devoted rabbi, his heart longed to encourage them to remain steadfast and even to grow despite the difficult season. Like a good rabbi, James explains that two paths lay before them with two very different ends. They could continue down their current path, giving in to the temptations of their evil desires which would result in death. Or they could course correct and apply God's wisdom to help them be faithful and persevere through the trial which results in life. Like James readers, we may find ourselves beaten down by hard times, wondering where God is and struggling to stay on God's path to life. But what if, instead, we trusted James' wisdom and asked God how he wants to use our circumstances to make us more like Jesus? What if we walked out our faith by looking beyond ourselves and began caring for others going through even greater difficulties than we are? When we begin to shift to this kind of thinking, we begin to experience maturity, and that is the James effect. So you understand where this lesson comes from. It's during a period of time when Christians are struggling because the world around them doesn't care for what they think or believe, and of course that is a very specific challenge to their own personal faith and how they live that out amongst other people. That should ring a few bells with us. And so James is the perfect place to go to as we transition 
from this year into the next year, and the specific section is in chapter 4, where James says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there carrying on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Now, this specific section at first glance almost leads us to believe that James is offering business advice, or at least we could put it in the category of Christian business advice. But if we dig down a little bit deeper and take a look at this phrase that he uses, he's actually talking about a much larger concept. While practices in business certainly would fall into this category, he's talking about their entire life on earth as Christians. This phrase about making your way through life or as you proceed on to a new city to do your business there oftentimes is figuratively used to describe one's path through this earthly life. And then both the philosophy or the principles by which one chooses that path. So what James is pointing out to these people is it's one thing to make business plans. It's another thing completely to think that you're in control of your own life and that God quite honestly has very little say into what happens, both in your decision-making process as well as the outcome. Remember, James is talking to people who once lived their faith in a very fervent way. They couldn't wait to tell other people about how God had changed their lives by bringing to them the promise of a Savior and seeing God keep that promise. But slowly and surely, both the persecution by their fellow Jews as well as the thinking of the world started to influence the way that they thought and the choices they made about their lives. James goes on to point out just how foolish that is and how futile it is to think that you or I have any control over the future. He says, you know what? You have no understanding, quite honestly, no comprehension of what the future might hold for you. And you and I both know exactly how true that is. You have no idea what's going to happen in 2024. I have no idea what's going to happen in 2024. I don't have any clue what's going to happen tomorrow. In fact, you and I both know exactly what James is talking about because we worry about future that has yet to unfold almost as much as we worry about the present circumstances that we go through each and every day of our lives. Somehow we will take a look at these events that God allows to uh, come into our lives or a specific path down which he is leading us and we fret and we become anxious because it's not the way that we wanted to go. It's not the way that we planned to go. That's the point that James is making with these people. In fact, he says the only benefit that we humans have when it comes to understanding the concept of time is when it goes past us. The only true ability we have as sinful human beings is to look back. And then hopefully by God's grace, we can start to connect dots one after another and go, well, now I see what God was doing here. Well, now I understand why God let that happen to me. 
And if you really take a close look and you connect those dots properly, you can only be amazed by the wisdom and foresight of God to use those events to prepare you for the right now and what is yet to come. I cannot tell you how many times in my own ministry I've had to stop and go, okay, I finally get it, God. What happened 20 years ago is now bearing fruit today. And what you let me go through back then has given me both the experience and hopefully some wisdom to deal with those events today and tomorrow and in the days to come. Truth of the matter is, is that what James does, and he, if you will, unloads both barrels on these people by recalling something with which they were all familiar. And that's why it's important that we understand he's writing this first and foremost to Jewish Christians. The Jews had an excellent working knowledge of the Old Testament far greater than probably each and every one of us has because it was a part of their life. Learning the Old Testament was an intimate part of their lives. And so without actually quoting the book of Ecclesiastes, James uses the same exact wording that Solomon does in order to make this very vital point. The way sinful human beings tend to look at life apart from God is simply a series of random events over which we try to convince ourselves we have some modicum of control. And then when things get beyond our control, or things get out of control, that's when we start to remember, oh yeah, there's a God, and we tend to want to blame him. Not thinking, well, I could have done this, or I could have said that. The reality is, is that as long as Solomon looked for the meaning of life, Apart from God and his guidance in our lives, he kept coming up with this one conclusion again and again, life is meaningless. Now, you need to understand exactly what that means. When he uses that term meaningless, what he's talking about is life here without God is like a mist, a puff of smoke. It's here one moment, it's gone the next. What Solomon and James are both talking about is the shortness of our earthly lives. And the point he's trying to make with these Jewish Christians is, look how much energy, how much of your focus you put into the short <laughs> earthly life, and you're doing that at expense of trusting God with your eternal lives. I think sometimes we also find ourselves going down that very same road, that sometimes we can become so earth-focused that we forget about we're on a much longer and larger path into eternity. But the opposite is also true. Sometimes we can think in such eternal terms, and we thank God that we're set on the right path towards heaven, we forget how intimately he deals with us on a minute-to-minute, -minute, a second-to-second -second basis of our earthly lives. Truth of the matter is, is that James really wraps this part of this up nicely, and he does it with one little word. The word anti. That's how he introduces this final thought. And unfortunately, we almost always are misled by that when it is spoken to us in the English language. Because this word comes to us from the Greek, but it's lost half of its meaning. When we think of anti, we usually think of things people are against. I'm anti this. I'm anti that. But in its original language, it means something more. I'm not only against something, I'm not only opposed to this idea, it also holds with it the concept of, I'm for this idea. It's as if we're headed in one direction. We have one thought pattern. We have one belief system, and God takes us and turns us completely around, and we have the exact opposite thought, the exact opposite belief system, thanks to God. 
The same thing needs to be applied to our plans for this new year. You know, there's something interesting about the book of James, and I don't know how many of you read through it, how much study you've done on it, but apart from the book of Revelations, uh, it's probably the most confused New Testament book that I think we Christians read. Part of that confusion comes with the fact that James talks a lot about doing good works, and that's a subject matter that we Lutherans tend to not want to really talk about, given our history and the Reformation and our origins. But I think there's another reason why we don't like to talk about good works. It's because oftentimes we have grown so comfortable with talking about faith that we forget this is also an intimate part of God turning us around. You see, what was happening to these early Christians was they were practicing a religion but not actually living a faith. And I think sometimes we also fall into that very same habit. In fact, not only does James align perfectly with the rest of Scripture as far as how God chooses to save us, but he takes it, if you will, to this point where he's in perfect agreement with the Apostle Paul. And that's one of the reasons why we had this as a lesson today. Paul himself condemns an empty religion. He says, you... Grippa knew, and these Jews knew, that I was one of the most prominent, one of the most hardcore Pharisees. And if you know anything about the Pharisees, their philosophy and their course of life was they were going to earn their place in God's family. They were going to show everybody else how good they can be. And so, of course, based on that, we want to condemn good works. We do, anytime somebody believes that's the means by which God brings us back into his royal family and invites us into our heavenly home. That is not the system of salvation that James is talking about. What James is talking about is the second statement that Paul makes in regards to the fact that, oh, did I go one too far already? Okay, there we go. What Paul is talking about in regards to now what guides and has changed his lives, and that's in the secure promise that God has made to him. A promise of the resurrection from the dead, a promise that one day he will call our name, a promise that one day that call of our name will invite us into this close relationship with God that we've all been created for and long for, and we get to do that eternally. You see what Paul does is he puts his money where his mouth is. I used to live in empty faith, and now I believe in something that I'm not just willing to die for, but I am willing to live out every single moment of this life. At what point did this all become about religion? Where we simply say the right words? Or we confess the right things? I'm not suggesting that's completely what the church has become, and I'm not suggesting that that is all of our faith. But sometimes it seems like we're far more comfortable talking about the things that God has done in us and stopping the conversation there when, in fact, God invites us to actually have a change in our lives and he works through us. I'll tell you what I mean. The question that stands before us is not do you have big plans for 2024, but do you have big trust in God for those plans? Did you, as you started to plot out the next 365 days, sit down and have a talk with God about it? Did you ask God, what do you want me to do? And I know that doesn't mean we set aside some of the obligations that we have, and it's not planning that is wrong. James never says that. What James is talking about is that you start to make these human plans without 
any way, shape, or form involving Almighty God in them. Now, you think that you're in complete control of the path that you're going to take in the next year's time, and you discount the fact that God has already got a course plotted out for you, and you just pray that your planning meshes with God's. But if it does not, that also opens the door to the chance for us to actually exercise our faith out loud. It's one thing to say, I trust God. It's another thing to actually do it on a day-by-day basis. Which leaves this question hanging out there that we all have to wrestle with. Do we? Do we trust God? And probably the only way that we can honestly answer that is by not just looking ahead, but really looking behind. Let me ask it this way. How many decisions did you make in 2023 that were based solely on how you felt? How many decisions, how many plans did you make which were the result of being afraid of something? That you were completely gripped with fear, and so you had to do this, this, or this. And maybe even no lower along the line did you stop, get down on your knees and say, God, help me. God, help me. I don't know what to do, and I'm afraid. How many of the choices that you made in 2023, how many of our plans were based on this slow but sure erosion of how the world looks at life and less about how God would have us look at life. How many decisions are we making based on the world's idea of love and we're starting to lose the definition of of true love, that it isn't about us. True love is about sacrifice, the sacrifice that was made for us, that we don't get to define what it is because God has already defined it for us. How many plans did you make in 2023 that were based on the fact that you were trying to make somebody else happy? No, let me say that differently. How many choices and plans did you make that you made to please somebody else? And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I like to make my wife happy. I like to make my children happy. I like to make you happy. But when the motivation becomes you putting value on me or somebody else determining my life's purpose, and I've left God out of the equation, that is not good planning. How often do we make choices and make plans based on how others value us and we have forgotten the high value that God has placed on us? I want to take you down this one path just so that we're able to honestly deal with proper planning for 2024, this area of feelings, because there's some intimate component of the human head and heart that I think sometimes we overlook, and we need to understand this if we're going to make big plans for this new year. When we hear the word emotion, most of us think of love, hate, happiness, or fear, those strong feelings we experience throughout life. Our emotions are the driving force behind many of our behaviors, helpful and unhelpful. Just where do our emotions come from? Our brain is wired to look for threats or rewards. If one is detected, the feeling region of the brain alerts us through the release of chemical messages. Emotions are the effect of these chemical messages traveling from our brain through the body. When our brain detects a potential threat, our brain releases the stress hormones adrenaline and cortisol, which prepare us for a fight or flight response. When we detect or experience something rewarding, such as someone doing something nice for you, our brain releases dopamine, oxytocin, or serotonin, 
These are the chemicals that make us feel good and motivate us to continue on the task or behavior. In these instances, the feeling region of the brain kicks in before the thinking part. Sometimes the reactions of the feeling brain are so strong that it dominates our behaviors and we're unable to think rationally in the moment. Our emotions hijack our brain. While many of our emotional responses happen subconsciously, our thinking can influence our emotions and sometimes this can be unhelpful. Just thinking about something threatening can trigger an emotional response. This is where we can manage our emotions with conscious thinking. Our emotions play a powerful role in the way we experience the world. Understanding and regulating our emotions through our thoughts and behaviors can help us take greater control of our brain and achieve our goals. And if our goal is to be more Christ-like every day and year of our lives, and if our goal is to actually have successful plans for 2024, wouldn't it make sense that we consciously think about these things, we control our emotions, so that we can better understand not only God's design for our brains and our bodies, but we can recognize what sin has done to them. Uh, you have to understand that oftentimes what this world likes to do, and I think after a while we start to hear these things, is we start to make these decisions based on feelings. And sometimes people say there's a difference between a feeling and emotion, but they come from the very same place. The truth of the matter is, is that if we're making decisions or plans based on how we feel, we have to recognize that those feelings are oftentimes flawed. That's what sin has done. That's why even human love or love for God many times fails to be what God actually created it to be. If our goal is to actually be more Christ-like and trusting in this new year, and if we understand that God designed us to both be happy here and then ultimately because of sin to enjoy eternal happiness within him in heaven, does it not make sense? Is it not a rational thought to control these emotions that have been broken by sin and whenever we have the sense to do one thing, we should make sure we're examining it to see if it falls within the will and the planning of God. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Oftentimes when we have these kind of discussions, we grow a little bit uncomfortable because buried deep inside each and every one of our hearts is this little evil person that says, you're not talking about me. I don't have those problems. Pastor, I don't show favoritism. I don't slander other people. I don't talk behind other people's backs. I don't get in fights with fellow Christians. I don't love money more than I love God. I don't trust it. And you can bet I'm not going to blaspheme the name of Almighty God. But then we're lying to ourselves. There's a part of this heart that is broken, that simply doesn't want to admit the truth. That without God, we are absolutely nothing. That without God, there is no meaning or purpose to this life. Without God, there is no path through the muck and mire that we face every single day. And yet, knowing that full well, how often do we try to step out and start out down our own path, and it's only when we find ourselves in trouble, it's like, oh, that's right. I need God. So in 2024, when you face a challenge, when a difficulty comes your way, Take that as one of the signposts to the path of your new year that God is trying to remind you you cannot go it alone. To wrap up this admonition, which is to remind these early Christians that there were some flaws that they needed to deal with in their life and encourage them to more fully embrace 
the way in which God would take them, he ends this way, as it is, you boast and brag. Well, how? Because they're putting more faith in themselves. That's a form of arrogance and pride. He goes on, all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. And that's the word for sin that he uses. You have missed the mark of holy God. Now this also is a part of a challenging discussion because we Christians tend to have a different discussion about sin. There's actually two ways to sin, and James is pointing out the other one. The conversation that we're more comfortable having is what's known as the sins of commission, things that I commit, things that I know I do against Holy's law. God says, you need to do this, and I choose to do that. What James is talking about is the other category known as sins of omission. And we don't talk much about this. Part of the reason is, is because if you really start to go down the list of sins of omission, it becomes a judgmental checklist. Are you good enough? Have you done enough? And James does not want to take us there. But what he's trying to show us is that when we put more faith in ourselves than in God, when we simply refuse to leave God out of our plans, that's what's known as a sin of omission. And the classic example of the sin of omission is Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan where both a priest and a Levite, the tribe of the priests, walk by their fellow Jew who was in desperate need, even though deep down inside they knew they should stop to help him. They committed the sin of omission, not because they did something evil, but because they failed to do that thing for which God created them and to which God called them. And the more devious of the two sins, the one we tend to lie about more often than not, is the sin of omission. Everything you've talked about this morning, Pastor, I'm good with that. I trust God. I practice my religion. But the truth of the matter is, is there's moments in this new year when God is going to bring us to the precipice and give us what appears to be no good way out. It's in that moment he says, I need you to learn to trust me. Not just trust me more than you trust you. I need you to trust me. Because you cannot see where this is going. You cannot even begin to understand or comprehend what I'm going to do with this. And instead of you standing there asking all kinds of questions, waiting for me to give you the answers, I need you to close your mouth, open your ears, shut your eyes, and jump. And trust that I've got you. So I could talk all kinds of resolutions and let you go home today thinking, okay, we've set some lofty goals, and if we work hard, and if we work hard together, we can accomplish them, or I can talk about proper planning. That every step of the way as we prepare ourselves to go into 2024, we don't make one decision or choice without trusting God. See, sometimes the way we want to hear this is, God is good if I start making my plans and I kind of consult with him on those if you've listened carefully to what James is saying is, you don't start your planning before you start talking to God. You start talking to God, and then you make your plans. Why this is such a vital and crucial message probably can be proven to us from our recent history. Could any of you have planned for or predicted some of the things that we've lived through and are living through right now? The last couple of years, let's just be honest, have been a bloody nightmare. Who could have seen those things? God. Who could have planned for those things? God. 
Who says that he will do the very same thing, not just he's done in the past, but will continue to do those things into the future? God. So it's one thing for me to simply tell you, trust God. It's another thing to actually ask you to put that into practice. And by committing to this new year, to actually trusting God, not just with your plans, not just with a few moments of your life, but to encourage you like James does to trust God in everything at all times. Because if you don't, you're going to come to the same place that these people came to, same place that Solomon came to. It's all just meaningless. What's the point? You know, I think this is one valuable part of this lesson that we've always talked about, and we talk about all the time, that maybe is lost on us. We just celebrated the birth of the Savior. Thank God for Christmas. It's such an amazing holiday. Time with family and friends, celebration, time off of work. Oh my goodness, it's one of the best times of the year. But what we're celebrating is the fact that God is not only perfect at keeping his promises, he is perfect at keeping his plans. Do you know what it took for God to direct the course of history so that everything would happen at just the right time so that our Savior would be born into our flesh and blood so he could come and make payment for all of our sins? You and I typically have no problem with God making that plan. Thank God he does. He's put us back, oops, he's put us back onto the path of heaven. Can we trust him in that same way for tomorrow? and the next day, and the next. He's not just the perfect promise keeper, he's the perfect planner to keep those promises. And so if you've got big plans for 2024, and I would encourage you to make big plans, make sure that the biggest plan of all is you choosing to have every step of your path and journey, every part of your plan, be submitted to God's will and to trust only in him. I can't think of any bigger plan than that. There's a common myth that our Christian lives are filled with blessings and all of our struggles are left behind. Of course, those of us who have been following Jesus for more than a few years know all too well this is simply not the case. The life of a believer is filled with ups and downs, blessings and trials, good times and difficult times. Nothing is gained from a life without struggle. God uses various challenges in our lives as tools to help us grow stronger and build up our endurance. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God places trials in our lives to test our faith. God wants us to learn to depend on Him rather than on our own talent and resources. We all have a natural tendency to try and fix things in life on our own by opening up our bank account, leaning on our own special abilities, or trusting the personal connections we've cultivated with the power of our personalities. When we trust in these things more than we trust in God, they have become an idol to us. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. God wants us to humble ourselves before him, realizing that all of our resources and talents were gifts from his hand. We need to keep in mind that God can take away his gifts if he believes they have become a source of pride that is disrupting our relationship with him. 
all of us who have been traveling with the Lord for more than a few years can cite a number of difficulties that were clearly resolved by God's hand. These surprising solutions seem to come out of nowhere and have God's signature written all over them. God loves us deeply and wants us to rest completely in the understanding that we are not self-sufficient. God is in complete control.